Merry Christmas, Nick and Nolan listeners. Merry Christmas! Ho, 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 ho. Oh, you just sounded so creepy. I know. Don't I? Santa's <laughs> freaking creepy. I, we will just, Merry Christmas, everybody. There's <laughs> just no way for us to get into that right now. So as you know, today is Wednesday, but it is also Christmas. And in lieu of releasing a brand new podcast on this day, a holiday that we hope many of you are spending with loved ones and family and friends, we decided or were asked if we would release an episode that we recorded some time back. It, it, uh, what you often call an evergreen pod. Yes, an evergreen pod. Which is evergreen trees this time of year. It's a perfect timing for such an analogy. No, no, no. So we are going to re-release one of Bruce's favorite episodes. You want to tell us what we did in this episode? So one of the things that we did leading up to the 2019 season is we did a pod that we called the McDermott Masterclass, where we spent the entire episode dissecting Sean McDermott fundamentally so that we could understand him better. And this is a pod that happened in the off season, but I think in lieu of some of the decisions that he's made this year and in lieu of us getting another year's worth of McDermott evidence, I feel like, you know, I mean, two out of three years, he's gotten us to the playoffs. I mean, obviously more people are trusting the process than ever before. And I feel like it would be a good time to revisit some of the fundamental foundational pieces that make Sean McDermott who he is. And that this was at the very beginning of our tenure with Buffalo Rumblings, it was a time when we probably didn't have as many listeners as we do now. The Bills weren't as exciting, and people weren't on board and into the team at that point in time as much now. So hopefully a few people who didn't hear this will get the opportunity to hear it now and, and enjoy it. So without any further ado, here is a flashback to our pod from earlier this season, the McDermott Masterclass. to the Nick and Nolan show a Buffalo rumblings podcast with your host Nick Bat the Prime Minister of Sweden visited Washington today and my tiny little nipples went to France and Bruce Nolan yo brethren what up with thee Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Nick Bat. You can find me on Twitter at N-I-C-K-B-A-T. And along with me, as always, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. That's right. It is so nice to have you with us on this ever-important fifth date. You said we went straight from third date to fifth date as far as importance, which I, is why I dropped all my hot takes in date, on date four. Yeah, because nobody paid attention, nobody apparently. Cares. Nobody, nobody, cares. nobody paid attention. Nobody yeah. cares. Nobody cares. Nobody was interested. Not at all. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. So, but here we are on the fifth date, and in true fitting fashion, we're going to let you meet the parents. We're going to talk about our parental figure of Sean McDermott. Today's podcast, start to finish, is we are going to try to get inside of the mind and understand the person, the decision maker, 
the way in which Sean McDermott processes the world and what he wants out of this football team and what he's trying to do at One Bills Drive. We've had him for two seasons, going into a third season, the man who ended the drought. It's time that we introduce you, our listeners, to him, McProcess. McProcess. I like McProcess. All right. So, Bruce, how much... uh, effort or time did you have to put in getting into some of Sean McDermott's person? So we have a surface level understanding of Sean McDermott and there have been a lot of people who have done great deep dives in Sean McDermott. I had a decent knowledge of Sean McDermott before doing the research for this pod because as I had mentioned previously, a lot of my family are all Eagles fans. So I knew Sean McDermott from his defensive assistant coach days in Philadelphia. I was a big Jim Johnson fan. And when Jim Johnson left the Eagles as their defensive coordinator, Sean McDermott took over for him, had huge, unbelievably legendary shoes to fill. And I was familiar with Sean McDermott there. When they let him go, he went to Carolina. I was familiar with him there. So I wasn't shocked. Who is this guy when he came out of nowhere to be the the Bills head coach? Because he didn't really come out of nowhere, in my opinion. So I had a, a decent amount of knowledge about him. However, I want to make sure I put a good product out there for the listeners. And so this weekend, I spent uh, a lot of time digging into specific tentpole foundational pieces to find information on how McDermott views the world. One of the things that we had discussed when we decided we were going to do a pod on McDermott was whether or not maybe we should grade how we think he's done the thing that he's that he's done as far as the responsibilities of a head coach, right? We talked about things like the game day 46 and establishing culture, game management, hiring staff. And then we got to the point where maybe it's more interesting to talk about why he thinks the things that he does or what those things that underlie how he made all those decisions are. Because, yeah, we can grade what he has done, but understanding why he does what he does... I think that's even more interesting. I think he's a fascinating guy in general anyways, just because of how he is changing the culture so much. We're going straight from Rex Ryan to him, right? So two very, very different guys, both fascinating. And I think that to get a peek inside of McDermott's mind will be will be helpful for all of us in understanding what our team is doing and maybe why it's doing what it's doing. And I hope that this will help. And I hope that this will help bring insight to his decision-making. And I hope that it brings insight to why it is that he does what he does. As I mentioned on the pod, and as I've mentioned just in real life a million times, why and how are far more important interrogatives than what. The fact that he made a decision is not really relevant. It's why did he make the decision and how does he make the decisions? What is the process behind it? Because if you know why and how, you can predict the future. If you only know what in general, that's just data. That's just binaries. It's ones and zeros. Okay, this is a thing. Great. Okay, this thing is blue. Fantastic. Why is it blue? This thing bit my dog. That's great. Why did this thing bite my dog? It boils down to data just being noise. But data with context can provide us the ability to predict the future, which is valuable because we know why. Now, obviously, we don't have any inside sources. We haven't done any interviews. We didn't go back and talk to his third grade you know, teacher or anything like that. This is all surface. Well, did you? You gave, you gave me a look. 
I would have. You would have. I would have if it was available for me. Right, right, right. So we are going to go through a handful of questions here and try to understand who Sean McDermott is. And then from all the information that we have at our disposal, but really intentionally aggregating that data and trying to make some things out of it. And that's exactly what this is. This is an aggregation of important foundational data that if viewed as part of the rest of the white noise may not mean much, but if you pull it out and combine it to help answer questions, I think there's value here. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So first off, do you want to just go, you, you did it briefly just a moment ago, but some of like the resume work history on, on Sean McDermott's LinkedIn, what's his work history as far as where he's come from to where he's gotten now? Okay. So Sean McDermott's resume looks like this. 1998, William and Mary, graduate assistant. Philadelphia Eagles started as a scouting administrative coordinator. I have no clue what that role did for the Eagles in 99. But in 2001, he became the assistant to the head coach. Kind of like assistant to the regional manager. <laughs> yeah, assistant, assistant regional manager? As assistant regional manager. Assistant to the regional manager. Do yeah. I so in 2002 and 2003, he was a defensive assistant and quality control coach. In 2004 to 2006, he was the assistant defensive backs coach. Then he was the secondary coach. Then he was the linebackers coach. Then he was promoted from linebackers coach to defensive coordinator and secondary coach combined. And he was there in 2009 and in 2010. He got fired and was picked up by Ron Rivera, who had come over from the Chargers to coach the Panthers was the defensive coordinator there from 2011 to 2016, then he came to us. Okay, so is it high praise for a defensive coach like Ron Rivera to leave his team and not bring over one of his own guys to be the defensive coordinator in Carolina and grab somebody like Sean McDermott from a different franchise instead? Yes, I do think so. I think that having Ron Rivera decide, I would rather take in somebody from outside the organization than to bring over my, you know, San Diego Chargers linebackers coach is high praise. However, it's very important to note that Ron Rivera and Sean McDermott worked together before uh. at the Eagles from 99 to 2003. So it wasn't someone he was unfamiliar with. It might on the surface appear that it was someone Rivera was unfamiliar with, but Rivera and Sean McDermott are both from the Andy Reid coaching tree. Okay, so before we get into all of the observations that we have about Sean McDermott and and what you've discovered or aggregated from all of the press conferences and quotes and things like that that you ran across, how is it that you're approaching this in the first place? Okay, so a couple assumptions that need to be made. Number one, assumption number one is that Sean McDermott is not a pathological liar. We have to take him at face value when he says things. Okay. Now, obviously, you have to sift through coach speak. That's part of the deal. But we have to be able to assume that if he says something that appears outside of coach speak, or if he says something that is even slightly revealing, we have to assume that is a truthful statement. The second assumption we have to make is that Sean McDermott is in full control of his own decision making. You would think that that wouldn't have to be said, but given NFL and sports teams in general given their ownership's tendency to meddle in things, we have to assume that when he does something, he does it because he intended to do it. So those are the two things 
we have to do because you can you can make judgments on people based on what they say and what they do but you can only do that if they say what they mean and they do what they intend to do so those are the two foundational principles we have to agree for the purposes of this discussion to ascribe to those two foundational tenets okay fair enough Okay, so even though Sean McDermott is a defensive coach, and that is where he spent his time as both a position coach and as a coordinator, how does he view NFL offenses? What makes a good NFL offense? What does he want out of NFL offense? What is important to Sean McDermott about NFL offenses? Give us his perspective on that. I'd like to throw out a couple sources real quick. Jay Skirsky, Buffalo News, and WGR 550 Transcripts were very valuable in me answering this question. But Sean McDermott philosophically believes in balance. I know this because one of the first things he said about Rick Dennison when he hired him was he runs a balanced scheme. Why does Sean McDermott believe in balance? Because he believes in winning and controlling the line of scrimmage. He has said, quote, you have to be able to win up front because if you don't, you have no run game and you can't throw it either. The better general statement is, what I believe in, is you've got to make sure you establish the line of scrimmage first. Then you say, game plan wise, are we better off throwing against this team or are we better off running? Some of that is based on the looks you're presented. Sean McDermott believes you have to be able to do both. You have to be balanced. You can't go and throw it 50 times a game. You can't go and run it 50 times a game. And what is it that allows you to be balanced? Controlling the line of scrimmage. Because if you can't control the line of scrimmage, it forces you to do things you don't want to do. My assumption is that that means that when you want to pass the ball, you're going to give your quarterback time to do so. And when you want to run the ball, you're going to get some push and open up holes. Right. There is nothing up front that is prohibiting you from being able to do what you want to do. That's what controlling the line of scrimmage means. It means, okay, if we want to run this, nothing's going to break down and stop us from running this consistently enough that we no longer can do this. More options, better than less options. And if you have a bad offensive line, your options start to get dwindled from you. They start to be stolen from you. So how how did we wind up in the position we did last year? I mean, that had to be Sean McDermott pulling his hair out. Uh, well, he doesn't have any left. <laughs> sure, yeah. But if he did... He would have pulled his hair out. He has specifically talked about in post-game press conferences when we win, well, we control the line of scrimmage. In post-game press conferences when we lose, well, we didn't control the line of scrimmage. He said it when we hired him. He said it when he hired an offensive coordinator. He says it when we win. He says it when we lose. It's a foundational principle of Sean McDermott. A person, so is my assumption about this correct? When you say that he believes in a balanced offense, that makes me believe that he is going to take a little bit of what defenses give him that he is going to say, okay, well, what are they bad at? Let's go ahead and do that this week. Yes. As opposed to, I'm going to impress my will upon you. Yes. I don't think he believes in that because number one, he doesn't hire coordinators who believe in that. When he hired Brian Dable, who comes from a New England tree. New England is famous for adjusting game plans week to week. One week, they'll come out and throw it 40 times. The next week, they'll come out and run it 40 times. It's very clear to me, based on Sean McDermott's hiring of offensive coordinators, based on his statements, that he's one of those guys who thinks, hey, if we can control the line of scrimmage, that allows us 
to now alter the game plan week to week based on run pass, types of runs, types of passes that we want to to attack a specific person's weaknesses and also take what they're giving us. It seems a little curious that that's his perspective coming from working under Andy Reid. Yeah, Andy Reid is a little has always been known for being a little pass happy. He's gotten a little bit better as he's gotten older, but that was constantly an issue for him. I remember the Brian Westbrook days in Philadelphia and Philadelphia Eagles fans just screaming about how he would throw the ball 50 times a game and his clock management was terrible, which means he would end up giving the other team way more possessions than he probably should have because he didn't know how to run out the darn clock because he didn't run the ball. So it does seem a little strange, but pretty clearly he has given us the evidence to be able to say, here's what he believes in. He believes in controlling the line of scrimmage and then altering the game plan, run, pass, different types of runs, different types of passes based on the opponent and the looks they're giving you inside the game. And as long as you control the line of scrimmage, you can do those things. Okay, so how does a guy like Josh Allen, who maybe isn't the quarterback that can do everything well, who can make every throw on the field, you know, we have some we have some reasons to be worried about his short passing. We have some reason to be worried about his timing passing. Those are things that I would imagine that if you're facing a defense that's not particularly good at those, then, you, then Sean McDermott's ideal situation would be, that's what we're doing this week. I truly believe they think that sh- that Josh Allen can eventually do it all. And that the reason he wasn't able to do it all earlier is because he didn't have NFL-level coaching. He didn't even have really good-level coaching or nearly the amount of pass attempts that it takes to get good at those things. I think they look at Josh Allen and go, we're, we're not going to have to make these accommodations forever. He can be a complete quarterback. Yeah. If you could just go ahead and make sure you do that from now on, that would be great. Interesting. Okay, well, I hope they're right. So what about defensively? How does Sean McDermott view NFL defense, what makes it good, what makes it bad, what you ought to do, what you ought not do? So a couple sources on this. David Newton from ESPN. Chris Trapasso, formerly of Buffalo Rumblings. Mm. You're my boy, Blue! Now of CBS. So he learned under Jim Johnson. But it doesn't look like Jim Johnson. What, Jim, was, what was Jim Johnson? Jim Johnson was a crazy zone blitz maniac. Jim Johnson would bring people, he would bring the water boy to come blitz you. It would happen. And all of a sudden, you would look over and one of your defensive linemen has dropped so far into coverage that he's, he's, he's doing water on the sidelines. And the water boy comes in off the sidelines and starts blitzing you. You're, you're, you're drinking the wrong water. Jim Johnson was an absolutely insane zone blitz freak. Jean McDermott is not. But he did keep one piece. He kept the double A-gap blitz. A-gap being the gap on either side of the center. So double A-gap, zone blitz. Sean McDermott kept that. And we see it all the time. We saw it all the time in Carolina. We still see it. But that was one thing that he kept. The other thing he kept was we talked about one gapping and two gapping in our draft and post-draft episodes of this, which now that I think about it, Buffalo Rumblings people didn't hear those episodes because it was the Bills Backers podcast. But one gapping, two gapping is how many gaps do your defensive linemen have as their responsibilities? 4-3, traditionally one gapping. 3-4, traditionally two gapping. It is a one gapping zone-based defense is what he believes in. A lot of cover three base, and he believes foundationally in this. Players create pressure more than scheme does. 
This is the opposite of Rex. He is the anti-Rex in almost every way, including personality, but also defensive scheme. McDermott believes that players create pressure more often and more effectively than scheme does. So does that mean that he believes in premium talent? Yes. In the players that are that are responsible for creating pressure. But also, if you simplify things for people, they can play faster and it allows lesser players to perform at a higher level because they're not being bogged down by 37 different responsibilities. Okay, that's interesting. So I have some questions about this then. The double A-gap zone blitz. So what you're talking about there is you've got your four down defensive linemen. They are all going forward. They're all pursuing the quarterback. And then you have two other guys who are not defensive linemen who are going to shoot at the center on their on both his right and his left. Is that correct? Yes. And what makes it a zone get a zone blitz is one of those defensive linemen or two of them will drop back into coverage and occupy the zone that is being abandoned by the two blitzers. So you'll end up just I'm just telling you right now. I, okay, so let quick aside. Ed Oliver, absolutely perfect. The perfect fit for this defense, there is no better lineup of fit to talent in the first round of the 2019 NFL Draft than Ed Oliver to the Bills. And is it specifically because of this play call and how he can frequently do this. he wants to do this? He can do this. Ed Oliver was running as a middle linebacker for a lot of teams. They were like, I don't know if he's a little underside. Can we? Can he play a middle linebacker? The answer is yes. Ed Oliver can play middle linebacker. So Ed Oliver can absolutely drop into coverage and cover a zone. He's a little short, right? He's not going to have the wingspan that Tremaine Edmonds does. But the fact of the matter is, you will see Ed Oliver drop into coverage. That will happen. And he can run laterally with a drag route. Because occasionally he might have to. And he shouldn't be doing it all the time. But it's not uncommon to see a defensive lineman drop into a short zone that was abandoned by a blitzing linebacker. That's what a zone blitz is. And Sean McDermott doesn't go back crazy with it like Jim Johnson did. Jim Johnson brought, I mean, I mean, I saw him bring like wide corners, like which you very rarely see. You see slot corners come, but he would bring wide corners and he would have like a defensive end drop into a shallow zone laterally to the line of scrimmage to cover a short zone that was abandoned by a wide cornerback blitzing. I don't know. I mean, just stuff you come up with when you're drinking with your friends. Hey, guys, let's pull up the whiteboard, see how this looks, right? <laughs> That's the stuff Jim Johnson was known for. He was crazy, and he was awesome. So Sean McDermott didn't keep all the craziness, but he kept a little bit, a little bit. And the double-A zone gap, is that typically going to be Trey Edmonds and a safety or Trey Edmonds and Matt Milano or yeah. Trey Edmonds and Zoe? Is it yeah. any any combination of those things? Could be both safeties? Yep. I mean, if you're if you're okay going cover zero, you know, then you, you could bring both safeties. I don't know if you I don't know if you'd want to. Um, but if you're in nickel coverage and you've got Tremaine Edmonds and Matt Milano, you could absolutely do it there. Okay, so does his belief that players create pressure, not scheme? Does that lend himself to want someone like Trent Murphy or Shaq Lawson, who maybe is a little less sexy and a little less of a shiny toy compared to Jerry Hughes, who is all of that talent and production in, you know, kind of prepackaged, ready to go? You know what I'm saying? Like, those are two very different things that we have on one side of the defensive line versus the other. 
How does Sean McDermott view those two things? Don't misunderstand me. He's always going to prefer premium talent. And he gives this away when he says, you got to make plays. That's a phrase you hear from him all the time. And as I was digging through this and trying to create some sort of semblance of a construct with all this data together, constantly, the things he says over and over again, when someone says something a thousand times, you should probably pay attention to it. And one of the things he says, and one of the things his players say is, we got to make plays. 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 The idea being that Sean McDermott is going to them going, listen, guys, I'm going to let you make plays. I'm not going to try and, you know, go crazy here with all sorts of ridiculous things and say the scheme is going to make it happen for you. Just follow the scheme and everything will be fine, right? What Sean McDermott's going to say is, listen, guys, I simplified the world for you. I gave you this one-on-one. Now you got to make it you happen. Gotta do it. you got to make it happen. And premium talent's always going to be able to make it happen more so than less premium talent. So don't misunderstand me. The fact that he can make lesser talent perform at a higher level doesn't mean he can't also help make a great talent perform at an astronomical level. Side question on the zone blitz. Is that typically going to be either defensive tackle will drop back or are you sometimes going to see defensive ends drop back in that middle zone? You can absolutely see a defensive end drop back. It depends I mean, where you're bringing the pressure from. You know, Star Lutuele dropping back doesn't sound so sexy to me. No, it's hilarious, <laughs> but it's it, but it's absolutely true. You're going to you're going to drop a defensive lineman into the zone that was abandoned by the player blitzing. And the reason this concept, remember how I mentioned that it's 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 like a chess match. Offensive scheming will do one thing and then defense will respond and then offense will respond and it goes back and forth, okay? So, if you bring a blitz from a specific area, quarterback is trained to try and get a hot route to the area that that was abandoned by that person. The zone blitz concept is based around the idea that if I bring a linebacker from a specific place, you're naturally going to be inclined as a quarterback to want to throw the ball to that spot that was just abandoned. Not expecting there to be a six foot five lineman backpedaling into that area, which throws you all off, which causes you to look for the hot route and either throw it and get it picked or blocked and knocked up in the air, or look to that hot route and go, oh crap, there's a guy there. And now all of a sudden you're panicking and the guy who's blitzing gets home. That's the concept. That's the idea philosophically is that, yes, I'm going to blitz, but it looks like I'm bringing five, but I'm not bringing five. I'm still bringing four. It just looks like a different four. That's the idea, right? The idea is saying, okay, I'm not going to bring more than they can handle. I'm just going to bring different people than they expect me to bring. Okay, cool. Well, we've gone over the offense and the defense. we got a lot more to do. But we're going to take a quick break here so we can fit that in, and we will be right back with you. Welcome back, everybody, to the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Nick Bat. You can find me on Twitter, at N-I-C-K-B-A-T. Along with me, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter, at Bruce Exclusive. And we hope that you're enjoying this fifth date. You know, I think we just we just took that little bathroom break. You know, we were just hanging out with the parents in the living room. It got you know got to the, the natural moment of silence. You excused yourself. Uh, we've met you off to the side. We don't have to go fully back to the conversation yet. So we just want to check in with you. Make sure you're not overwhelmed. You know how this date goes. This so, is a vivid metaphor. It's a lot of there's a lot of social experience that goes into this. <laughs> so the first person in my wife's family that I met was their dog. I went to go pick her up for our date and I pulled in their driveway and I opened my door and their golden retriever comes trotting up the 
the driveway at me. Just do 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 do. And Zeke was the first person I met in their in their family. And then I met their and then I met her dad. Shook my hand. You must be Bruce. Of course, he didn't call me Bruce because it's not my real name. But he called me by my real name. You must be blah blah blah. And I didn't I didn't get that living room moment. From the minute I met their family, it was like, oh hey, you know, how you doing? You must uh, be the guy. Well, you were, I didn't get that living room moment. First, I got robbed of that. First of all, you were blessed to have met the dog first because dogs are way better than people. Oh, yeah. Second of all, you if, if it was that casual and that easy for you, I don't know what to tell you <laughs> because the, for the rest of us out here, there's a little bit more stress and worry and, and you know desire to be liked and all that that goes into it. And that's exactly what we're doing with our listeners right now. So we're just checking in. Just making sure that everything's going good. I hope it's as easy for you as it is for Bruce. Because, you know what? It's going great. In case you're worried, we want to let you know it's going great. But it is the fifth date, and there are some expectations. We're just trying to make sure that we do everything the way that we should. That's all. All right, let's get it. All right. We've talked about what he believes in on offense and defense. What about, in general, winning football? What does winning football look like to Sean McDermott? We mentioned that Sean McDermott wants to control the line of scrimmage on offense, and that same status applies on defense. Sean, Mc, Sean McDermott believes in toxic differential. He doesn't say that word, but if you listen to him, he says things like limiting big plays. He says things like turnover ratio. He talks about turnover ratio all the time. What is the toxic differential? Toxic, toxic differential is a combination of big plays for and against and turnovers for and against. And toxic differential has been proven to correlate very, very heavily toward winning. So, he believes in it. Now, a lot of people believe turnovers are random, and as such, shouldn't be used in this. But the fact of the matter is, analytically, the the connection is there between winning and losing and toxic differential. It's just there. And it's pretty clear, even though he doesn't say the phrase toxic differential, if you dig through, unfortunately I did, dig through (laughs) the transcripts, of his post-game pressers, and you dig through the interviews, and you dig through all that stuff, he's constantly harping on these points that he believes that controlling the line of scrimmage and winning in toxic differential will help you win the game. So there is a bit of a controversy, you're saying, amongst people who talk about toxic differential, whether they like it or they dislike it, that the turnover aspect within it is something that you perhaps cannot control. Do I understand that right? Yeah, it just comes randomly, right? So, and a lot of it's based on whether or not you face bad quarterbacks. Fumble recoveries are a weird, weird thing because you can force 10 fumbles and not get any of them based on the way the ball bounces. So a lot of people say, well, it's too random. And I would argue that if if looked in a microeconomic standpoint, it is too random. But if looked over the course of an entire year or multiple years, I think a lot of that stuff has a tendency to wash out. I think there's value in toxic differential personally. Well, I wonder if there isn't there like a statistic of turnover opportunity? Like how many times does a cornerback drop the ball? How many times is the ball touch that one of the two hands of a defensive player and then they don't grab it? Yeah, Pro Football Focus does a turnover worthy throw for a quarterback. They assign it to a quarterback. Their point being that if you throw a, a, a bad pass and it hits a defender in the hands, or if you throw a bad pass and it hits them in the hands and they catch it, it's still a terrible throw. The point is that only difference is the only difference is whether or not the person caught it. So interceptions... Huge huge difference as far as the game is concerned. Sure, but it doesn't make a difference from a quarterback standpoint. Right. They, it was an equally bad throw. Right, right, right. So yes, there are some advanced statistics and things like that that go into determining 
taking out some of the randomness. I wonder if there's a second generation of toxic differential that's around the corner that is more about turnover, you know, opportunities for turnovers that defenses put themselves in, maybe just not capitalized on. That would be a more accurate toxic differential. Anyways, that's, I take a, it. that's a, yeah, that sounds like something that somebody who loves this should be doing. <laughs> okay. So go on more about winning. So he believes in toxic differential and controlling the line of scrimmage. How do those things materialize with what he's doing around the team or whatever he's planning for on a weekly basis? Okay, so that's how you win on the field. What is it that makes those things manifest themselves? And this kind of bleeds into something else we're going to talk about, but he believes in the process. He believes in culture. I know you knew we were going to get into this at some point. And... When he talks about that, he believes that if you have everyone pulling in the same direction and Sean McDermott says a word that coaches don't say, and I went through and I found him saying this word all the time, and then I went to other coaches. I randomly pulled five coaches and I went through a bunch of their stuff and you just don't see it. It's the word love. People are really uncomfortable using this word because in English... We only have one word for the word love. In Greek, they had multiple words for the word love. Yes, I did the digging. So, in Greek, if you said you love someone, there are multiple ways you can say that to describe the type of love you have for them. Whether that's a friendship love, whether that's an erotic love, whether that's um, a a type of love. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna put in the hey girl. Hey girl. <laughs> yeah, Barry White love. Barry White love, right? So. There's different words for that. In English, we only have one word, and it's love. And because of that, people are very uncomfortable using it. Sean McDermott is not. Sean McDermott, when he, back when he was a coach for the Panthers, talked about getting people, getting the players to love each other and getting the coaches to love the players and the players to love the coaches. This concept means you can lead. You can lead people through a relationship. This is a foundational principle of Sean McDermott that is really important that we cannot gloss over. You can be an authority to someone and that is not the same as you leading them. You lead people out of a relationship with them. You cannot have a relationship with them if there's not love there. So this is a Bruceism here. Love is a synonym for sacrifice. How much you love something is directly correlative to what you were willing to give up for that thing or that person. Sean McDermott and I actually share this opinion. And they talk about, and this is why he has players get up there and tell their stories. This is why it matters so much to him. Because he believes that the way you get people to operate at peak efficiency on the field is when they try that little extra because they love their teammates and don't want to let them down. When you love your teammates... You work harder for them. When you love your coaches, you you feel indebted to them. There's an obligation that comes with love. I just mentioned that love is synonymous with sacrifice. If you love your team, you're willing to give up extra than if you don't love your team. So he's going to be able to squeeze the maximum amount of effort and the maximum amount of work out of you because you're willing to give up something for the team, for your coach, for your players next to you that you weren't willing to give up if you didn't love them. That's the overarching philosophy that then manifests itself through these principles. I'm just going to let that marinate for a minute. That's some, that's some high-level psychology here. I told you, man. I did the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's very interesting. 
it's almost like uh, it, it's it's a step beyond trust, right? I think yes. that trust is perhaps the perspective that we would all carry with us and assume is going to be a part of a good team or a good unit or whatever. Trust, do your part, and trust that your teammate is going to do their part. The Bill Belichick thing, do your job. Do your job. This is a step past that. Yeah. It seems a step past that. I think it's incredibly admirable. I think it's an easy thing to root for. I think it's a thing that makes it very, you know, I don't know. We've had the opportunity, both you and I, to talk a couple of times recently about what it is like and what it means to be a part of Bill's Mafia, largely with the Bill's guys and uh, and on Twitter and things like that. And this, I think, meshes with some of the ethos that makes up Bill's Mafia you know, pretty well, you know, the stuff with Poncho, the stuff with Jim Kelly when he was fighting against cancer, the charity focus of places like 26 shirts, you know, these things that are kind of part of the fabric of what Bill's Mafia is about or has experienced collectively to know, at least assume, we're guessing, you know, some of this is a little bit of a guess, but this is our reverse engineering and of what we believe Sean McDermott is all about. To, to believe that that's also part of what is intrinsically important to our team in the building. That's that that's special. I mean, that's that's really special. It is special. And it's not it's not common. It's not common. So when you hear Sean McDermott say something like culture Trump's tra- strategy, this is what he's talking about. What he's saying is the best designed plans in the world aren't going to get you where you want to go by themselves. You've got to have something else behind it. You've got to have something there. And I admire that. I really do. Sean McDermott makes me want to pull my hair out. Now, I actually have hair. I have a really, really good head of hair. And Sean McDermott makes me, yeah. yeah. I got it a little more. Well, you know, I don't have a lot going in my life that allows me to really brag significantly, but my hair is one of them. And you know what? We're just going to cut this whole thing. The people will judge. No, we're not going to cut this. No, we're just going to cut it. We're just going to cut. Just, just cut this part. Just, just cut the part about my hair because it doesn't sound good. And it's not getting cut. You're going to, you're going to leave it in. Everybody's going to hear it tomorrow. No, please don't do that. (laughs) But he really didn't. So he makes me want to pull my hair out with some of his game day stuff. We're going to get into it later. But you cannot fault him for this concept because I have led teams in my life. You have led teams in your life. In our day-to-day jobs, we lead teams. And we've seen the difference between good culture and bad culture. And we understand what that looks like when you're willing to go the extra mile for your teammates and your boss and things like that. It, well, it's, it, it, it all goes back to part... It, to me, this is somewhat connected to the, the game of football being played on paper sometimes. When people talk about things where they're just evaluating the talent that a team has versus the actual results. The fact that our team got six wins last year whenever we were the, the favorite to pick number one overall in several places and several prognosticators. That kind of, that kind of stuff to me, suggests that there's something that analytically is surprising or something that's analytically different, difficult to evaluate. And this is something that I think, you know, the idea of saying that culture trumps strategy whenever culture is, it's impossible to analytically measure. For that to be part of who Sean McDermott is at like a molecular level, is going to lead us into places where our team is 
being put together or behaving or doing things in a certain way where they expect results or success whenever some people wouldn't. Because just on paper, looking at either the skill level, the talent, the experience, pick whatever you want, whatever characteristic you care about, that's lacking. And as a result, there's got to be consequences. And what I think you're suggesting, Sean McDermott would say, well, if, if we're doing things in a certain way, though, it's going to surprise you. What he's saying is that that will manifest itself in ways you wouldn't expect on the field. Exactly. And yeah. so now that's still good. It's still played on the field. But the thing is, that defensive lineman is going to put a little bit more effort into that drop from a zone defense. And he's not going to be lackadaisical and take the playoff because he wants to make sure he doesn't let the guy down next to him and wants to fill that zone. So it will manifest itself in players giving just a little bit more. Playing football is a communal experience for the team. Yeah. Playing football is a communal experience for the team. Every player on the field does have individual responsibilities, okay? And so they can focus on their individual responsibilities. They could perhaps focus on their individual responsibilities and excel. But sometimes there are opportunities as well where because it's 11 guys, not one, if you are getting more out of seven of those 11 or five out of those 11 or four out of those 11 than maybe you otherwise would, that is going to have perhaps a trickle-down effect where the efficiency and the performance of the entire unit over the course of a game, over the course of a season, is going to be more than it otherwise would. And that's one of the things we used to say on the Bills Backers pod that we beat to death a handful of times, and I'm sure we'll get back into it on this pod as we do more episodes, but that Sean McDermott consistently would get more out of players than pick your other coach in your other location in your other city that coaching staff would have gotten out of that player in an identical circumstance. And I don't know what to call call that other than good coaching. But, you know, this perhaps helps us define that. Okay, let's talk about his relationship with his GM. So head coaches, obviously, have their responsibilities, but part of what you would imagine would be a healthy organization would be a collaborative, positive, good relationship of understanding and moving in the same directionness with his GM. I created a word and it's fine. Don't worry about it. It was like it. a multiple word hyphenated. <laughs> it was awesome. Yes. Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott seem to have, to me, a relationship that is as close as and chummy as I've seen. Uh, now, I don't follow other teams that intimately, but you tell me about how Sean McDermott views the general manager and them working together. Sean McDermott wants to be phys- philosophically aligned with his GM. That's the phrase, philosophically aligned. I take all these data points, right? And I read all these articles and I dive in and I try and come up with something, some one phrase or concept we can build around. And in this case, it is philosophically aligned. Here's how I know. Do you remember the whole when Whaley was still the GM? Oh, I remember. And the reason they were giving for him being muzzled was we were going to go with the one, one voice, voice, right? Yes, I remember. You know, nobody ever talks about that ever again. Like the second Whaley got fired, we're all like, oh, that was a load of crap. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's why, because we all believe it was a load of crap. I have a hot take for you. Okay. It wasn't a load of crap. He just trusts Brandon Bean to be philosophically aligned with him. He and Brandon Bean can both speak and can still be one voice. Here's why. I see. I see. Here's why. They asked Sean McDermott after 
Whaley was gone if the one voice thing was still going to happen. Quote, as long as I'm the head coach, I do, saying, referencing, I expect to be the one voice. We're going with that one voice approach and streamlined and aligned on what we're doing, why we're doing it and how we're doing it. I believe in that. We believe in that. And that's an organizational decision at this time. At this time. Okay. Okay. He said after Whaley was already gone that the intent was to have a one voice. But if you'll notice that, Brandon Bean talks a lot in the offseason. Yes, he does. Why? Why? Because they're not breaking the rules. It's still one voice. It's just coming from Sean McDermott during the season and Brandon Bean in the offseason. Well, how? so answer me this. Riddle me this. Riddle me this. How common is it? You, you pay attention to other teams more than I do. How common is it for a front office and a head coach to be as philosophically aligned as these two are? Because in my experience as a Bills fan, not, not so common. They always end up being or one of them gets fired. Because if they're not, they're both going to the owner going, no, it's his fault. No, I'm getting him players. He's just not using them right. I Listen, I've got the right systems. He just won't get me the right players. And then the owner has to pick a, pick a side, and the person who loses gets fired. It's like the Game of Thrones. Either you win or you die. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. <laughs> Some people are going to love that reference. I think we got a soundbite for that. The big woman's still here. So, you always end up philosophically aligned because if you don't, one of you gets fired. But a lot of people take this out by just making them Bill Belichick. Chip Kelly had this, had this control. The, the one I want to use is Chip Kelly and Howie Roseman. So, Chip Kelly won the battle. And Howie Roseman basically got shoved off to the side. And then Chip Kelly proceeded to drive the train off the tracks and burn everything to the ground. And Jeffrey Lurie... The owner of the Eagles went, yeah, that didn't work. We're going to go ahead and fire Chip Kelly. Hey, Howie, sorry about that. Um, I'm going to let you run the show from here on in. And Howie Roseman is now considered one of the best executives in the league because he hired Doug Peterson to, you know, coach football and said, we have a similar philosophy. Let's do this. It doesn't surprise me that Doug Peterson comes from the Andy Reid tree. Andy Reid, of course, can absolutely coexist with Howie Roseman. So it's unsurprising that they share philosophical stuff. But... A lot of teams sign their head coaches and general managers to the same length contracts to get this exact same thing done. San Francisco famously hired Shanahan and John Lynch to six-year contracts and kind of tied them together for this purpose. Makes sense. Okay. I just want to make sure I... Vic Carucci, Buffalo News article. Just want to throw the source in there. All right. Fair enough. What about his staff? So, we, you know, he's, he's working on the high level of decision-making for the organizational direction with the general manager, right? But his day-to-day interaction with players is largely going to be between him and his coordinators and even more influentially, perhaps, are his position coaches and their assistants, quality control, all of that. How does he view the assembling of his staff? What does he expect from them? Just, just lay it on us. He wants balance and experience and younger players. He talked about this when he talked about his staff. He said, yeah, we know we got some experienced people and we got some younger guys with upside. Clearly, that was a positive statement. He likes that. But overarching theory, which ties into his leadership development concepts, he wants people who can connect with players. 
chrisbrownbuffalobills.com. Multiple articles on his theory on leadership and how he wants a staff who can connect with players. There is a long article about how they spent time learning how to connect with millennials. Coaching staffs across the league are not doing this. Sean McDermott is because he believes all the things I mentioned earlier. Sean McDermott wants people who connect with players, not just player-to-player connection, but coach-to-player connection and player-to-coach connection. Because again, connection breeds love, which then breeds sacrifice, which breeds higher level of effort, which breeds better on the field. These things are connected. In addition, he said two things that really give us nothing. He said, well, you know, we want to be good people. We want to be smart. Okay, great. Yeah, me too. That would be nice. Great. Everybody, that would be good. But, but let's not tie over the fact that he said good person. Well, that kind of jives with some of the other things that we can put more weight on, right? Right. People don't say, well, I really want to hire this coach because he's a good person. No, No one says that. Sean McDermott does because if you're a good person, it makes it easier to connect with other people. Which again ties in that whole string I just mentioned. Yeah, it's almost an attribute, you know, for him. It's almost yes. It's almost a soft skill. Right? It's a checkbox. Yeah. Right. It's a is this person a good person? Because people will not follow people who they do not believe are competent, have courage, and have character. The three C's of leadership. You will follow people you believe have courage. You will follow people who you believe are competent, and you will follow people who you believe have character. And Sean McDermott believes that if you don't have character, then if you have a lot of competence, you might be able to be an authority, but you won't be able to lead. And that's a difference between Sean McDermott and everybody else. That's what he looks at in the staff around him. This is very much like the concept of him wanting to have a vet in every position room. This concept he's talked about before, I want to have a vet in every position room, it's the same reason as his coaching things. He, vets can connect with younger players. He wants players to connect with players. He wants players to connect with coaches. He wants coaches to connect with other coaches. Well, I think that what you just said, like he wants coaches to connect with players. I think that every head coach would say that they want that, right? That that, that's important. Sure. That it helps. That would be somewhat of some coach speak. But it sounds like that the way in which he specifically is aiming to achieve that is by the level of experience and that they are they, they are able to connect with the age group of the player that they're coaching. Yeah. Because some guys, hypothetically, are going to just age out of that, right? When the generation passes, you could have been in the league for, you know, 30 years. You could have been the, the greatest that you're whatever you did. But if you get new players and it's a, it's a lost cause to talk to them. Sean McDermott talked about the compliment sandwich when he was talking about millennials. The compliment sandwich. The compliment sandwich. You tell them something good, then you tell them something you need to improve on, then you finish it up by telling them something good, right? It's a, it's, it's a leadership strategy. The idea being that you're hedging you're hedging the negativity by surrounding it with more positive traits. Sure. It's sure. a compliment sandwich, right? <laughs> it's just a funny name. Yeah, that's great. I love it. So that the fact that he said that is not relevant because the compliment sandwich is relevant. It's relevant because he's actually actively trying to figure out how to communicate more effectively to millennials. Yeah, I mean, it, kind of, it sounds to me like it jives very much with the article. I don't know if it was an article or was it just Matthew Fairburn and Joe Biscellia's podcast where they talk about how he's just devouring all of these books, right? And trying always to be on 
the understanding of other leadership wisdom axioms and things like that. Little 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 nuggets of how you ought do things. This is the quote from Chris Brown, BuffaloBills.com. Quote, there has always been an effort to figure out a way to make that connection. I think the older we get, the wider the gap just from an age standpoint becomes, and we have to go out of our way to be intentional in our efforts to make that connection. We only have so much time to get to know these players and for them to understand what we're trying to teach. That connection is highly important to us. He believes that connection breeds the ability to lead. You lead out of a relationship. And if you can't connect, you can't have a relationship. And if you can't have a relationship, you can't lead. All right. Awesome. Well, why don't we go ahead and take another break and then we will come back and we will finish this up and uh, you just don't don't leave. You know, what I mean, you're take this is another opportunity for you to take your little trip to the bathroom. Don't don't ghost us here. Come back. We got some good stuff still. It's going to be a great date. We'll see you in a minute. Welcome back, everybody. This is Nick Bat with the Nick and Nolan show, along with Bruce Nolan. And we are going to go ahead and continue our McDermott Masterclass. So we have talked about what Sean McDermott thinks about offense, what he thinks about defense, what he wants on the staff around him, what he believes wins games, what he wants from the GM and the organizational structure. Right. So we've we've gone through all of that stuff and tried to bring everybody's knowledge level up about what McDermott is all about. With all that having been talked about, what do we think his strengths are, Bruce? What is McDermott's overarching strengths that he brings to his job? The things that we just mentioned are important to him. It would be really, really sad if he was bad at those things. It'd be like someone who considers themselves a strategist who isn't really that good at strategy. Oh, wait, we had someone like that. His name was Rex. Yeah, really. Anyway... Oh, it's okay. We just need to bring on his brother Rob, and then the strategy will be foolproof because right. there'll be two two heads in the room. Double the Ryans. <laughs> yeah. Where's double my freshness, double my fun? Yeah, really. Anyway, he actually is good at that. He is good at the thing he puts the effort into. That is a strength of him. If you ask his players, they will tell you it's a strength of his. He also has a tendency to lean into his strengths. Some people, one of the things I think is really interesting about McDermott is that some people really work on improving their weaknesses. Sean McDermott may or may not be one of those people, but he <laughs> certainly doubles down on his strengths. Yeah. This is why all the thing we talked about with Biscalia and Fairburn and their discussion with Sean McDermott about always reading these books about leadership. He did an interview where they asked him exclusively leadership questions. And he talked about things about being a successful leader. What's the most important component of, of leadership? He said, right off the bat, no hedging, no coach speak, self-awareness. Bam. It was the first thing he said. Self-awareness. Knowing yourself is highly important to leading people. For me, it's knowing when I'm on edge. I have a tendency to blow up. And being able to manage that and knowing when I need a workout to clear my mind are important from a leadership standpoint. I know that seems nothing. But saying, wow, I have kind of a temper. My temper could inhibit me from leading people. I should find a way to deal with that. We say it like it's so easy, but we don't do it in our own day-to-day lives. How many people do we all know, either you're listening to this right now and you're thinking about yourself and a previous interaction you've had with a loved one, with your workplace, with your family, anything, right? A friend where you needed that yourself or how many people in our lives from when we were kids until now do we wish 
had that self-awareness. Do you know what we do instead of having self-awareness? Instead, we openly acknowledge our flaws and then go, I'm just being real. This is the concept that we get into now. This is Shulman, me, man. I'm just being me. Right. Me being me. Hey, hate to break it to you. Being you is only a positive trait if being you is not a colossal jackass. Boom. Roasted. So mm-hmm. you cannot use that as a positive and say, well, man, I'm just real. I'm a hundred. I keep it a hundred. Hey, if you keeping it a hundred means you're unkind and a jerk, don't keep it a hundred anymore. Don't be you. Be someone better. Well, Sean McDermott is taking the opposite approach. Sean McDermott's looking inside and going, eh, these are things that will inhibit me having a relationship, having a connection, which will stop me from leading. I should fix them. And that tells us a lot about him. It also tells us he believes in a growth mindset. This is a phrase we've heard we have. from him before. Where does that come from? Carol Dweck wrote a book and had a philosophy on idea of growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. A growth mindset is a concept that knowledge and experience is not fixed. You can learn to do new things. You can learn to handle yourself different ways. You have a growth mindset. It's based on this concept that if you praise someone for their intelligence, over time, you will get lower results than if you praise them for their effort. This is where trusting the process comes into play, psychologically speaking. If you praise someone over time for their intelligence, over time you're going to get diminishing returns on their results. But if you praise them for their effort, you will get increasing results. This concept being that if I believe if I work really hard, I can get better. If I truly believe that, then I'm going to get better. Then if I simply believe that talent is fixed and I either have it or I don't, it's binary. Sean McDermott would never tell you, well, they either have it or they don't. He would never say that. That will never come out of his mouth. Well, he either has it or he doesn't. Even if it's true, he wouldn't say it. Because it's not part of who he is on a fundamental DNA level. He believes in a growth mindset. They don't have it yet. They don't have it yet. But if they trust the process and they work hard and they show up every day and they... The needle will move. And the culture, they can get better. Yep. So... He believes that about himself too. He is a leader of men and he 100% knows it. My question is, does he know he has clock management problems? <laughs> well, that's the thing I want to ask. So we we can praise McDermott for his abilities in the character space, right? Yes. And we can praise him for his soft skills and his approach on how he builds relationship and moves the culture needle. I think that all those things are off the charts. I mean, I've never seen anything like it, not with the bills. So I'm over the moon about it. I love it all. I think that most, I think a lot of fans love it all. I don't know of all fans. I would imagine all fans. I can't read you. I can't imagine why you wouldn't, but I'm sure there are some people who don't. What about his football competency? Would we categorize that as a strength? And I'm not necessarily just talking about game day management as a coach. You know, he, he's a guy who still gets in the, he gets in the dirt. He's not the coach who has the uh, scaffolding lift, who is standing in the middle of four fields where practices are going on, watching up there, taking notes and not interacting with anybody. Sean McDermott teaches fundamentals well. Sean McDermott makes sure that his staff teaches fundamentals well. Tackling, blocking, fundamentals. Because this aligns with everything else. I mean, if, if I just said all these things about him and then he wasn't good fundamental coach, you'd be like, well, that doesn't jive at all. He does. In addition, 
he is a good defensive play caller. He is a good defensive play caller. He has an innate feel for understanding what an offense is trying to do and trying to call plays that will limit his weaknesses. He also Famously, he took the play calling from Leslie Frazier at halftime and the defense played much better. Same players, same play calls, different timing. Yeah, he also seems to have a knack for putting his his players in positions to be successful with his play calling. So it's not just that he is foiling the defense or foiling the offense. It's also that he's giving pick your pick your individual player, pick your individual unit on defense. He's giving them the opportunity to maybe do what they do best in this particular situation. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would absolutely agree with that. Okay. So I gave you the opportunity to talk about strengths as far as on the field stuff, and we haven't gotten into the game day management stuff. So I'm assuming that this is at least one of the bullets in the gun that are going to come out as we talk about weaknesses now. So go ahead and lead off with whatever you want, that or otherwise. What are some of the weaknesses that we perceive about Sean McDermott as a coach? Three things. Pivotal moments. Clock management. 46 decision-making. Pivotal moments being inexplicable fourth and punts. Sometimes he's crazy aggressive, and then sometimes he's not. And when he's asked about it after the game, he can't really explain why he did it. He's like, well, I really I really wanted to get points there. Okay, might have well, been great. one of those moments where he needed a workout to clear his head. Yeah. <laughs> didn't I, have the opportunity mid-game. I really wanted to get points there, so kick the field goal. Okay. We were down by seven, and we had never been closer than we were right then. And you had gone for it two times earlier in the game. This is the Patriots game I'm referencing. And you didn't you didn't get it. Uh, well, I really felt like we needed points there. Okay. Well, Couldn't strike out a third time, I guess. I, 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 and that's one of the things where he may be worried about the team morale if they don't miss it. Right? Yeah. If they miss it. And... But he's not good at explaining that. Yeah, and yeah. there doesn't seem to be an overarching foundational principle. Okay. It's not the same cases, every time. Right. It's not the same in every time. In these cases, I'm going to go for it. In these cases, I'm not going to go for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. There seems no underlying foundational principles there. In addition, clock management's a problem. Clock management is a problem. If he's, if he's terrible at it, everybody from the Andy Reid tree has terrible clock management, apparently, except for Doug Peterson. But clock management is just an issue. And I don't know why. <laughs> He should hire a coach for it. Yeah, how much is clock management? I mean, so I understand that there are some parts where he's making a call, but I also seem to 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 get the vibe that a lot of teams, the clock management is the responsibility of the offensive staff. It's not the, the of course the head coach can call timeouts and all that stuff and bark and make make, you know, immediate executive decisions, but sometimes it seems as though the offensive coordinator is the one who's really leading the clock management decisions whenever the offense is on the field. Of course, clock management matters for defense too. Yeah. But what how does how does McDermott fix it and what's he really primarily do wrong? What he primarily does wrong is he wastes time. So there is there is a, a plenty of times where he will get in a scenario where a timeout before the play versus a timeout after the play would have saved him 25 seconds. Things like that create problems. And if you watch for it, it's even more frustrating. So if you go into a game like I do, knowing that's a weakness, you start to see more of it too. And you get even more frustrated and you you call the waiter over for an extra Labatt because you just absolutely <laughs> have to manage 
the stress level of watching him and I start screaming at the television. Now, when I'm at the bar, I don't scream at the television very often. You can you can vouch for that. No, your head goes down quite often. <laughs> yes. Instead, I put my head down and I just kind of rub my eyebrows and I'm just like... I, 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 heavy I, size. Yes, heavy size. Lots of heavy size. Lots of looking at my wife going... Yeah, lots of, lots of this, yeah. Clenching. L- lots of the clenching, lots of whispering, that. and yelling, and all yep. that. Yeah, yeah. Lots of that. So, that's another thing. The third thing is the 46 decision-making. The inactives. I swear by all that is holy and sacred, <laughs> if we end up shorthanded in the defensive backfield because Sean McDermott dressed four corners one more time, I will lose my ever-living... I would go into the bar and look and, 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 and immediately find you. And I'd be like, Nick, Nick, Nick. He did it again. He did it again. And he'd be like, what, what did he do again? He did it again. By the time we got to the second or third day, oh, yeah. I would walk in and right. you would go, I know, I know, <laughs> Bruce, I know. And then one person would get hurt and all of a sudden we have a safety covering the slot corner. Yep. It's a true story. It's it's exactly how it would go. It was uh, the thing that we were worried about every every week before one o'clock. The most important thing for us at that point in time last season was how many corners are dressed, who's inactive. If you have one player get hurt, and now all of a sudden you have to overdo the entire game plan, that means you didn't make the right people active and inactive. So here's a question: In addition to the corners, that's our chief complaint. We saw it a lot last season. Are there other cardinal sins of inactives, not dressing enough of one position or whatever, that McDermott is prone to? Or is it primarily defensive backs? It's primarily defensive backs. Um, One of the things he doesn't do poorly that a lot of other people do poorly is offensive line stuff. So if you have a backup tackle who can only play... This is why position flex is so important to McDermott, is because it allows me to make less people active on the offensive line still be okay. This is why you need your backup guard to hopefully play center. If you have someone who only plays center, they better start. This is why if you have someone who's a backup tackle, this is why Adrian Waddle, I truly believe, is going to make the roster. Because he can play both tackles just literally, I mean, he doesn't even have to warm up. He's like, oh, okay. Left tackle, right tackle, it's fine. And that that's harder than you think. I don't know if you watched Deion Dawkins play right tackle when he was a rookie. It was bad. Yeah. So, okay, I'm not gonna get into the not gonna get into the offensive line. We'll talk about it in training camp. Not gonna get keep going. So that's a mistake that a lot of other coaches make that Sean McDermott doesn't. This year it's gonna be very interesting to see what he does, wide receivers and running backs, because of the special team stuff that we've talked about before. So there's an opportunity for him to make more mistakes here. But cornerback was something that I I, I thought he just consistent. He didn't learn. He didn't learn. <laughs> You're stumbling over yourself. Here. He did not learn. It <laughs> frustrates getting, the crap getting, out of me. Getting flustered. Yeah, no, I hear you. I was there. I watched you. I know. So this is why too. Sean McDermott frustrates me so much. You yeah. know why? Because I love him. Sean McDermott is a genuinely decent person, and I feel the same affinity for him I felt for Dick Geron and Chan Gailey. Mm-hmm. I legitimately have fondness for him, and I want him to do well so badly. Yeah. that it frustrates me more when he does these things than it did when Rex Ryan does these things because I legitimately had dislike for Rex Ryan as a person and as a coach. I do not like him. Yeah, I love Sean McDermott because Sean McDermott is, in his core, a good man. And you want to see justice done in the world by having a good man succeed. 
And so when he makes mistakes like this, and when he makes decisions that backfire, and I'm like, I knew it was going to backfire, I get more frustrated because I want him to do well so badly. Yeah. I mean, after after hearing all this, especially the middle of this episode, I don't know how you don't wind up in the corner of rooting for McDermott hard to succeed. Shout out, Robin Mundy, Y.O. Bills fan. Rob and I go way, 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 way back. Like from Buffalo Bills message boards circa 2000 and like early <laughs> message boards. Like, right? 2000 and early. I think I've known Robin for 15 years. Yeah. You know, 18 years. Back when she, when she and I used to talk on the Buffalo Bills message boards back in the day. Which is one of the reasons why my name is Bruce Nolan. It's because all those people from the Buffalo Bills message boards, they know me as Bruce Nolan. Because that was my name on the Buffalo Bills message boards. Whenever the movie came out, Bruce Almighty. Right. So, she has always pounded the table for Sean McDermott for this reason. I hope she listens to this episode and she hopes she appreciates, right, as a retired psychotherapist and a Bills Mafia blogger and uh, a person who I have tremendous amount of respect for in this area. I hope she appreciates the amount of work we put in. But this is something right up their alley. We can do more than just the X's and O's at the Nick and Nolan show, baby. Oh, baby. We're, Nick said we were we were renaissance men. That's right. And we don't just do X's and O's. We do philosophy and psychology too. And that's what we're doing. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Yep, yep, that's right. Okay, well, we're going to reel it in. It's been a hell of a fifth date. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? We're standing at that stoop, you know, saying goodnight to each other. And I really think that, uh, you know, this was a pretty good time. You met the folks. You met McDermott. You know, if, I had a good time. It's, it's Yeah, it's, I, I did too. It was a great night. And I think that, uh, you know, maybe it shouldn't end here. Maybe it should end with you going to leave us a review, that coveted five-star review, with a couple of sentences about what you think about what Nick and Nolan are doing here over at Buffalo Rumblings. Even if you've left a review in the past, maybe it's time to you know head over to iTunes. Update your review? Update your review. Maybe boost up that st- the star rating there. We would, uh, we would really like that. And, and we're game if you're game. So... Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. We really love what we're doing. And uh, we are going to be taking a food tour trip to the motherland. So Bruce and I are going up to Buffalo in July. We're going to be taking Bruce to all of the regional favorites of all of the foods that we all maybe from Western New York take for granted that Bruce has never had the opportunity to experience because he's never lived there because of the, the way in which he became a Bills fan and all that. So we're going to expose him and help him become an honorary Buffalonian. And we will talk about what that's going to look like more next week with a full lineup and all that stuff. It's pretty it's pretty awesome. We've got some really cool people who are going to be joining us while we're there. We'll be recording the whole thing and releasing it over podcasts or multiples or all that. It's going to be unlike anything we've ever done before. Yeah, it's going to be very, very... It's a, been a huge undertaking. Nick has really taken the lead on it. And I, I really hope you guys like it because we put a ton of effort into it. And it's unlike anything we've done before. And this is the time of year to do it. Yeah, yeah. Before the Bills come back from training camp. So we're going to close out the dog days of summer with something really interesting, we think. And uh, you're going to hear from some really cool people that you probably already know who they are and already like them. Uh, You're just going to hear us get to interact with them and them tell us their takes on the Buffalo cuisine. So 
Uh, hit us up on Twitter. You can find me at NickBat, N-I-C-K-B-A-T. You can find me at Bruce Exclusive. Let us know what you think of the show. Give us that review. Let's not end the night here. Come on. We're so close. We got to do it. We're there. It's the fifth date. And until next time. I do the cha-cha like a sissy girl. I like a do the cha-cha. <laughs>